This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled, Deconstructing the Delusion of Time, recorded June 30th, 2002, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Does anybody have the time? It's around 21 minutes after 11. I mean 11. Could I, could I have it, please? Okay. <clears throat> No, you're giving me a watch, Wesley, not the time. I want time. I don't want a watch. You can't have time without a watch. Oh, interesting. Interesting. What is time? We have watches that supposedly measure time. But what is time? Anybody give me a definition of time? It's a device to keep everything from happening at all at once. <laughs> what kind of device? A mechanical device? It's a mental construct. A mental construct. Oh, he's been around the center a long time. <laughs> what is distance? What is distant? Distance. Are you asking that question? I have no idea, but right now I want to know what time is. It seems similar to me. It's like a measurement of something. Well, let's think about that for a minute. We could do a Gedanken experiment. You know, this is uh, a favorite thing that Einstein liked to do. Think up, you know, what would that mean? So supposing you're out in space and you were disembodied or you were totally unaware of your body and all that was visible was a single star. Now, there might be a sense of distance there, but if nothing was moving, nothing was happening, would there be any time? So maybe you could have distance without time. I don't know. We're going to find out. Or no, we're not going to find out. <laughs> we're going to explore this. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it is interesting, though, particularly in our culture, where time dominates our lives so much. I mean, we live by the clock life. No other people in the whole history of humanity has ever lived. And yet, when it comes to defining it, it's quite mysterious. Uh, Isaac Newton defined it this way. He said, absolute true and mathematical time of itself and from its own nature flows equably without relation to anything external. So I think particularly for Westerners, we have this sense of time flowing, a steady flow of something flowing from past to future, just moving on. Sometimes we think of it crudely, but poetically as a river or something. But this is not how uh, all peoples in all times and all places have thought of time. Uh, for instance, the Algonquin language, Algonquin Native Americans, the Algonquin language has no word for time. There is no word for time. I read a whole book about this, one book just about the Algonquin view of time. How long did it take you to read it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Good spirits this morning. Uh, the way uh, the way you designate a new year, the new year happens in the first day of the month that the creek freezes over. So it's an event. So ah, the new year begins because now the creek is frozen. And then when that happens again, the first time it freezes in the after so many moons go by, that's the new year again. Months are named for events that happen in the month prominent events, like uh, it's the uh, cherry blossom month, or it's the turning leaf month. In other words, the leaves are turning. So this is the moon, and it's not a month, it's the moon in which the leaves turn. And if you want to ask somebody's age, you would say, grandfather, grandmother, how many moons like this have you seen with your own eyes? So it would be, uh, if it's leaf-turning moon, oh, I've seen, you know, 50 of these leaf-turning moons. Well, so in our time, you're approximately 50 years old. But there is no time. We're, I'm translating when I say, oh, so that means they're 50 years old. But they don't have an idea of years old. It's how many leaf-turning moons you've seen, you've actually experienced. African time is even uh, harder for us Westerners to understand. I read another book. This one took me a long time, by an African named John Mbiti, and he, he's trying to explain African religion, basically, and he's saying what's, what's so hard for Europeans to understand is the fundamental 
uh, idea or, or experience of time is totally different. So it's very hard to connect to the religion. And so he tries to give some uh, indication of this, and I'm giving you just a kind of a thumbnail sketch. He goes on for chapters, but time has a double movement, and it's related to human life. So the idea basically is there's this pool of life, undifferentiated life, and then human beings and, and uh, I presumably plants and animals and all that uh, arise out of this and take form. And if you're a human being, then you are born, you're a baby, and then uh, you have a arc in one movement of time that leads to your death. And then after your death, you continue moving, but now you're moving backwards in time. This is the double movement back to this pool. And you are in the process of moving as long as people remember you. So for one generation, two generations, when your name starts to be forgotten, then you're merging back into that pool and finally totally merge back. So there are these two movements going on. It's like your ancestors are there with you, you see, in time, but they're going in another direction now. So this is very strange, very hard for us to comprehend. <clears throat> Most uh, pre-industrial societies, their concept of time was not linear like ours, the steady flow from past to future. It was circular. And they saw everything as returning. So, you know, the heavens, the constellations all return to a point of origin. The seasons return to a point of origin. The plants return. Whole cosmoses are born and return to the point of origin, particularly, for instance, in the Indian cosmology. There's no beginning of time. All these uh, cosmoses are uh, expansions and contractions, and they're actually all dreams of uh, the god. So there's this whole idea of return and this book by Merchi Eliade, this beautiful little book, is called The Myth of Eternal Return. And he talks about how universal that concept was in pre-industrial societies and how fundamental it was. So then we might ask, how did our modern conception of time arise? I'm not going to give you a full history, but I just want to touch on some points because it is important for us to understand that Time is not just obvious to all human beings who have walked the earth. I mean, the, the experience of time, it varies and it changes even within a civilization and culture over time. You see, it's funny about time. We're, we're constantly stuck with the word, even though we're talking about it. First of all, the, the beginnings of our modern conception of time started in Mideastern and Egyptian and Greek civilizations who were trying to map or measure the cycles, the heavenly cycles, primarily the sun and the moon, but also the movement of the constellations and so forth. And they began to see the heavens as like a giant clock. The heavens were the clock. The sun and the moon were like hands or, or, or dials on this clock. And you lived in a clock. When you walked outside and you looked around, you're living in the clock. You look up in the sky and you know what time it is because of the position of the sun. If it's at night, you know what time it is because of the position of the moon and the constellations and so forth. And this was very useful because then you could correlate important human events with the clock. So you knew when it was time to do things, particularly for farmers and priests. Farmers needed this clock because it helped them know when it was time to plant. You know, when the, when the sun is uh, midpoint over the horizon that it wanders across during the course of a solar year, you know that's the equinox, it's time to start planting. And in the, in the fall when the harvest moon is golden or whatever, you know it's time to go harvest. I don't know if those are actually times, but that sort of thing. And then it was very important to priests because... Uh, in those cultures, celebrating rites and rituals and feast days and so forth was how human beings maintain the cosmic order. And the conception of things was the cosmos didn't just exist on its own. We humans had to act to maintain it. So it was very important to know when these feast days were or when these rites and rituals had to be performed. When you get to, uh, for instance, Christianity, it becomes personally important. Human redemption depends on 
going to church every Sunday and saying confession and, and whatnot. This applies even to the first clocks, particularly the first mechanical clocks that were invented in the West, clocks that used bells and weights rather than like sundials or water clocks and stuff. They were invented to call the faithful to prayer. They were invented by Christian monks because uh, in those days, you, as a Christian, you had to pray seven times a day. But how do you know when to pray? Especially when you're working in the fields. So the clock uh, tells you when it's time, and then the bell goes off, you know, on the hour for morning prayer, the midday prayer, and so forth. So this uh, invention of clocks and calendars and everything came out of a sacred sense of time and a very agricultural sense of time. Then things started to change around 1500, 1400. And for the next 300 years or so, time underwent a transformation in the West. It became industrialized and secularized. And clocks then became very important. The accuracy of uh, clocks became very important. For instance, when Western navigation uh, started to, uh, or when Western sailors started to be able to sail across oceans, they were sailing through time zones. And it became extremely important to know uh, your longitude, which is those imaginary lines that run up and down around the globe, to know where you were. And the way you did that was to have a clock on board your ship set by Greenwich Time, England. And then the farther away you got, the farther the clock got off. So if your clock said uh, noon, 12 o'clock, but the sun is dipping below the horizon, you know how to calculate the difference and you can tell how far you've gone. You know where you are. So now that the accuracy of time became important, it's driven by trade, by industry, and so forth. But for instance, factories run much more efficiently on clock time, mechanical clock time, than on sun time. You know, a farmer can wake up, yawn, the sun's coming up, the roosters are crawling, goes, does his chores, goes out to the field, oh, the sun's midday, he knows to quit, come home, and have lunch or whatever. But uh, in a factory, is much more mechanized. So what happens is, instead of a um, church bell calling the faithful to prayer, you have factory whistles and mine whistles calling workers to come work, work by the clock. So you get this shift going on here. Uh, Intellectually, a major innovation happened in the conception of time with Isaac Newton. Uh, Isaac Newton in the 17th century invented the calculus, a mathematical form, that calculated velocities, the change of rate of motion. And the, uh, ca the calculus used time as a parameter in the equations. I'm going to read you Webster's definition of a parameter, because some of you may not know what it is, and this is going to clear it up for you. <laughs> a parameter is any constant with variable values used as a referent for determining other values. You can see time is getting very abstract here. And the success of the calculus in predicting things uh, started to give rise to this, an acceptance of this idea of Newton's, that time was somehow something, not just uh, the sun going around or the moon going around, but we can actually measure something that is steady and flowing. So we can, with the calculus, we can fire off a cannonball, and we can say, okay, at one second, I know what distance it is, and two seconds, I know how far more it's gone, and three seconds, and I know that five seconds where it's going to land. And I can plot the whole trajectory through this calculus, through time, very precisely. So the cannonball seems to be moving through time from point A to point B. So this became really the way uh, people, uh, Westerners, thought about time. And most of us continue to think about it this way today. This, ha this was from 17th, 18th, 19th century. And then, of course, something interesting happened at the beginning of the 20th century. Einstein came along, and Einstein's theory overthrew this absolute conception of time as this objective, steady flow. Uh, in Einstein's theory, uh, time is dependent on your reference frame. There is no such thing as an absolute time. So if you are someone in a spaceship, 
and you are going, uh, oh, it's approaching the speeds of light relative to Earth here, time slows down for you. So this is a really interesting thing, and uh, it's, it's hard for us to really get. We say, oh, yeah, well, that's just Einstein. We don't relate it to our lives. But let's say your brother got on the spaceship, and he's taking a, a trip out into the, I don't know, the closest star or something. I think they're four light years away. So it takes five years to get there and five years to return by your time, your clock, see? So you're counting the days, the months, the years. Ten years, he returns. Now you're 10 years older, but he'll only be, I don't know, eight years older. And by his clock, he's got he, on the, the clock on board his ship and the calendar and everything is tracking the same thing. And he comes back and gee, you're two years older than he is. Yeah, this is true. And, and they've done the uh, experiments to verify it. And it is true. So time is, is, is relative in that sense. <laughs> And in Einstein's view of the world, time is part of a continuum, as a dimension or of, of a continuum of time-space. You, you mentioned that time and space somehow related. In Einstein's, they are related. And in fact, in, in a certain sense, from a, in an Einstein universe, time doesn't exist. Because in that universe, everything has already happened. It's already laid out. The whole universe is like a, a, a map that is already there. And Einstein called time a persistent illusion. It's hard for us to shape in our experience. But that's not the end of it, because then quantum mechanics came along 25 years later or so. And in quantum mechanics, uh, time doesn't exist because nothing ever happened. Because in the quantum mechanical formalism, all we have are calculations of probabilities of events that exist in potentia. No event ever exists. And this is why there's so much philosophical interest in quantum mechanics, because the, the, the equations do not connect with our experience. No photon ever appears in quantum mechanics. It's just the probabilities get higher and higher and higher, but nothing ever actually manifests. Very mysterious. So where are we at with time today? Uh, we don't really know. What is time? And meanwhile, our clocks at the practical level, our clocks no longer are tied to the cycles of the sun and, and uh, solar days and solar years and so forth. The current measure of time, and it's not, a, it's not really a measure of time, it is the definition of time is the atomic clock. And the atomic clock, and I'm going to have to read you this one, what it measures or what it tracks are the frequency of oscillating waves of electromagnetic radiation in cesium atoms. There you go. So in the little atom, there's these little magnetic waves. And that is the fundamental unit of time here. So a second, what we consider a second, is uh, 9,192 million cycles of this frequency. That's a megahertz. And then the smallest unit is a picosecond, which is a trillionth of our normal second. So that's how accurate we can measure. But what are we measuring? <clears throat> by the way, it's by sending these atomic clocks into space around the Earth orbiting that they, uh, that they verify Einstein's theory. Yes, indeed, these clocks slow down. When they come back, you compare them to another clock, I don't know, you know they're two trilliseconds off or whatever. Uh, and so we see they've slowed down. So if we look at these various ways of conceiving time, both around the uh, globe and also in terms of the development of conceptions of time in the West, what can we say? Well, one thing we can say is that time is really an attempt by the thinking mind to correlate various events. So for the hunter... The hunter might say, in the moon of cherry blossoms, go up to the high pastures because that's where you'll find the elk herds. See, you, you look at the cherry blossoms, oh, and you say, now they're, they're blooming, ah, that means the elk have migrated, I can go up there and we can hunt up there. If you asked a, uh, an Egyptian, what is time? 
An, an Egyptian says, well, again, when you see the, the sun rising at the midpoint over the horizon, that's the equinox, that's the time to start planting. The first one's correlating a, you know, a, a growth event of trees and so forth with elk herds. The second's correlating a celestial event with planting. If you ask a, uh, a Christian a priest how these correlations work, he says, well, now we have a calendar that tracks these events. On December 25th, say Christ's Mass. That'll help your future uh, probabilities in the afterlife. Uh, if we ask a, a seagoing captain, uh, the captain will say, well, time is when you, uh, he's giving advice to the new captain. He says, when you get out there, and you see that the sun is going down the horizon and your ship's clock says noon, then you can correlate that and you can calculate your longitude. And a modern CEO of an international corporation, you know, gets on the phone and says, uh, well, call me at three o'clock by uh, UTC, Universal Time Coordinates, which is by the atomic clock, and we'll have a a telephone conference, we can figure out how to, you know, hide our debts and inflate our profits. <laughs> and, and he's correlating this phone call with what's going on in a sesium atom. So the mind is just correlating various events, correlating various events. Now, what does all this have to do with mysticism? The mystics say that there is no such thing as time, There is only this correlation of events, and this correlation is imaginary, literally meaning that it happens in our minds. I mean, it does happen. Our minds do correlate. But there's nothing out there called time whatsoever. It's just a correlation. Here's what the Buddhist philosopher Nargajuna says. Space and time are not substances. There is nothing like an absolute time which remains as a reality apart from successive events. Time and space are derived notions, modes of reference. Vip said earlier, mental construct. Here's the Sufi, Ibn Arabi. Sufis are the mystics of Islam. There's a Buddhist philosopher. Now here's a Muslim. They're very, very different uh, traditions, different times, different places. But he says, time is an imaginary entity having no existence. It is denoted by the movements of the spheres or those of objects occupying a place when the question, when, is asked. The movements of the spheres is the movements of the heavens. So, time is like inches or meters or feet. I mean, there are no inches or meters or feet out there in the world. These are imaginary constructs. We calibrate, you know, in our minds, uh, distances, and then we mark rulers, and then we go measure things. But a log is not really three feet long. That's something we project onto the log. You see what we're talking about here? According to the mystics, there is only what the Christians would call the eternal now. Here's how Meister Eckhart says it. The now in which God made the first man, and the now in which the last man will have his end, and the now in which I am talking, They are all the same in God, and there is not more than the one now. So let's inquire about this in our own experience. Let's not just take their word for it. Is there such a thing as time? In one way, we can look at this as we can say, if there is time, if there is a past, and a present and a future, then there must be some boundary that distinguishes the past from the present and the future from the present. Now, we can be our own laboratories right here and now. We don't have to go anywhere. We don't need any instruments. We actually use one instrument, common instrument. But where is that boundary? Here's a clock. Old-fashioned clocks, not a digital clock. Everybody see the second hand going around? So what's it doing? I mean, we might think of it as it's counting something. Going by, like sheep going by or something. But is there anything in your experience going by here?
time seems like an approximation of of events. Well, then what, but we're trying to see in our experience right now, is there anything aside from what we think of in our actual experience called time, in our sensory empirical experience? I mean, don't think about it. Look and see. Is there a boundary that is crossed? We think of uh, this moment now. What happened to that? It went into the past somewhere? Where? I mean, the, the hand continues to sweep. Is anything changing? I mean, the hand is moving. It's in the memory. Not going to be yeah, yeah, memory. That's right. Memory is in the mind. Right. So I can remember like when you started this talk. Right. And started with those two books. Right. And when did I start them? Well, it seems like it was in the past. <laughs> <laughs> but now, wait a minute. This is interesting. If nothing's changed. Is this not now? Isn't this the same now? I mean, ha- ha- has anything changed? What could distinguish this now from the now when I started this talk? Things can move. Yes, certainly can. Hi, I'm moving my hand. Well, if you, you know, roll a, a billiard ball, it takes duration to get from one side of the table to the other. I don't. And, have to and I think that creates the illusion of time because we have this idea of duration. Right. So I don't have to. I can do it right here. I've moved. Yeah. The mystics aren't saying things don't move. I mean, you know, there's movement. But now, look, in the experience, isn't this still moving in the now? But you said that nothing changed. And, like, at the beginning of the talk, someone, I, I may have been sitting in a different position for instance, ah. and so things have changed. Yes. No, this is true. There's movement. But has time changed? I mean, do you have any experience of time? That's what I mean. Other than the clock hand, the clock hand is moving. There's no question about it. But as it moves, can you feel time moving? And and, is is there any boundary whatsoever where this present becomes past or where the future becomes present? Just in the mind saying, oh, that was in the past. Or the mind remembering you were sitting down an hour ago and understanding. So the, the mind, my mind is is comparing the two and then is creating a past. Ah, like, oh, last night I did such and such, so my mind remembers that, so it creates the time in my mind. And this is what the mystics mean when they say that it's a mental construct, it's a derived notion. There really isn't such a thing as time. It seems that if we want to move something into our past and memory, we have to put a boundary around it. Yeah. Yes, a mental boundary, yes. not a physical boundary. Yes. We don't take a lasso, you know, and tie it up. And, right? It seems akin to the apparent uh, difference between there is no end to you and no beginning to me. It looks like there's a difference between the two of us, but as we explore it, there really isn't. Well, ultimately, mystics say there are no boundaries. All of them are fictitious. But let's stick with the time one here, because otherwise, you know, this will be a talk about everything, because everything is made of boundaries. So. Yes? I experience the now as a stream, as an energy which is, which is always present, with no real boundaries. Yes. Uh, but elaborate on stream. How do you mean that? Feeling of continual, continuous motion. Well, there is continuous change, and that's experience. But there's con- we don't need the word time. Let me put it that way. I can talk about sensations changing. I can talk about clock, a hands change. I can talk about that experience of change. But but time, the way we think of it, is something apart from all that. As though there was something called time. As though even if everything stood still for a moment, time would continue. But what the mystics are saying, there's nothing apart from this change. This idea of time is just that. It's only an idea. One more line. We okay. Back to putting boundaries on these things. It's like uh, the now is a series of events. We call them an event when we put a boundary on it. We can stick it in the past. 
events are not time, even though your history seems to link the two. Ah, we're going to get into that one second. In fact, that's a good segue. This all may sound sort of abstract and philosophical, so really what does this have to do with how I lead my life, or if you're a spiritual practitioner, how do we practice? But in point of fact, it is very pertinent. What we call the future, if you examine this, we're going to examine this a little bit, are expectations, plans, ideas that are existing in the mind that are occurring now, in the present. But we lend them a reality they don't have. The technical word for that is we reify them. What we call the past are memories and vague uh, images that come back to us and so forth that occur now in the present, but we reify them as having some existence in the past. And when we see ourselves in this memory, as an image in this memory, or see ourselves in the future as an image in this plan or fantasy or expectation the mind is creating, we start to get a sense of a self that has a continuity in time that has a beginning and a middle and an end, a self that is subject to time, to suffering and death ultimately. And we begin to get, particularly with memory, we begin to get a sense of a personality with a personal history, which really solidifies the sense that we are a someone, a little isolated self that was born at some point, that's moving through time, and that eventually is going to go poof and leave time or go where, we don't know. So this construct which we take so much for granted that even if we want to talk about it, we say, well, you know, we take it so much for granted, that's some sort of, you know, esoteric physics discussion. But Einstein and all this space travel or quantum mechanics or whatever, what does that have to do with me? But moment to moment to moment, it is a defining part of our sense of self. This story of I that we create, the story of I is a story of I unfolding in time with a past and a present and a future. And it is this story of I, which mystics claim is totally imaginary, literally created in the mind, ongoing, not like it was created once and there it sort of sits there and hangs there like, you know, a blob. It's something we actively continue to do always in the present. This story of I is what distracts our attention, this story of I in time, from the reality of that eternal now. Because attention's always moving with this story. So it is very important as a spiritual seeker to become aware of how the mind generates this experience of time, this imaginary experience, and reifies it, takes it for granted, thinks it is real. Let's look into this a little bit more. And this is what you can do as a practice. When you make plans, be very aware that you are making a plan in the present. When the unfoldment of the events happens that you had planned for, be very aware of the discrepancy. What was the plan and what is happening now? Don't be distracted by whether you like it better or worse. I mean, that will be part of it. But that's what we focus on. But instead of focusing on that, see if you can see the difference of the present, always the present, and what that plan is. It was always imaginary. So a simple little example. You go to a restaurant. You order a dish. It's a wonderful restaurant. You go back a couple of times and you have an expectation you're going to get that same dish. And one day you go back and you say, you know, it's not as good as it used to be. I think the restaurant's going downhill. You know, they, they're using margarine instead of butter now. They're skimping on, you know what I mean? This happens, right? And then, so you see what's going on here. The future we imagined never is really what is always happening in the now. This, incidentally, is a cause of our suffering because we're always then attached to, 
oh, what we wanted to happen, and so we're always then disappointed with what's going on. Sometimes it happens in really big ways. You know, the the people uh, in New York on September 11th last year who got up in the morning, you know, brushed their teeth, shaved, uh, kissed their spouses goodbye, got on the subway train. They had plans for the whole day, you know, meetings to attend, where they're going to have lunch, this and that. They had no idea how far reality was going to depart from their plans when they arrived at the World Trade Center that morning. So our, our plans, our expectations... Sometimes, and you know, in the course, they, they more or less match because there is a patterning to unfoldment, the ever-present unfoldment. It's not just totally random. And so our plans track that patterning a little bit. And so they serve us. It's useful. It's useful to have clocks. It's useful even to talk about time and have time. But if you watch carefully, all these plans never, ever become anything other than imaginary. Even when what is happening is happening very close to what you plan for. The taste of the food when you go to the restaurant and it is just as good. Or maybe better, you say, oh, I thought this restaurant was good. This is really wonderful. The taste of the food is not what you thought about. <laughs> it's different. You know what I'm talking about? These are subtle things to watch in our experience. This is why mystics say each one of us is our own laboratory for investigating these things. The past is harder to see. We're more convinced that our memories are memories of something actual and real, objective, that happened. But if we investigate this, we can see that there is no objective standard here. Different cultures uh, construe the past very differently. Even within our own culture, history keeps being rewritten. For the last, oh, 10 years or so, I've been, as an amateur, sort of tracking developments in the historical reconstruction of Jesus and his times and, you know, what did Jesus really teach? What was life really like? And it's amazing in 10 years how much it keeps getting rewritten we feel like we're getting a more and more accurate picture. But what would it mean to have the accurate picture? I mean, does that mean it stops? No more history books are going to be written? Of course not. It's somebody, there's always going to be another one. Uh, trials and criminal investigations are a very good example because of their attempt to be precise to bring this out. So somebody uh, robs a bank. The police show up and they ask the witness, describe the robber. Well, you get different descriptions. Oh, he's wearing a blue baseball cap. Oh, no, he's wearing a white baseball cap. No, I thought he was bald. And then when you get to the trial, different witnesses come up and they'll give different versions of an event. Some eyewitnesses. And then maybe the person is convicted of a crime based on some eyewitness events. And then, you know, 10 years later, uh, they run a DNA test and they find out that the person couldn't have been there by another standard, which is we consider more objective. And then the eyewitness who swore that was the bank robber. I saw them. We have to say, well, wait a minute. No, you see, your memory is not accurate. It's not reflecting something objective. This is even true, you know, in our own lives. Bless us when we argue with our spouses or partners or whatever. You know, you said you'd mow the lawn this weekend. I never said I'd mow the lawn this weekend. I said if I had time, I might mow the lawn. No, you said you'd. What's, what is the truth here? And this is a good example of how certain we are, how we reify our own memories. We are sure. And we cling to that. And we hold on to that and how much friction it causes us. And often we're convinced that the other person is being malicious, that they, of course, they remember it the way we do, because that's the way it happened. But all we ever really get is what philosophers call intersubjective agreement, a consensus reality about what happened that is always subject to modification, continuing modification in the present, like the case of trials. It was 
done deal. Convicted, off to jail, boom, but then it's later modified. Oh, no, the person's released. Oh, no, there could be some more evidence. Arrested again, sent back to jail. I mean, we never arrived, you see? It's always a construction, a mental construction, which never can become anything other than that. So if we just examine our own lives, we can see how we reify, and we can look at our own lives and see, is there any objective reality upon which this mental construction is based? Or is it always just the present unfolding with this uh, train of thought constantly creating past and futures, past and futures for us as we uh, experience this unfolding? Yeah. Of course, that's true of the present, also, it's an approximation. <laughs> He's jumping away ahead. I was going to save that one for last. But I think I will save it for last, anyways, because it's a funny way in which that's construction. So, this is why Augustine said they strive to comprehend things eternal, while their hearts flutter between the motions of things past and to come, and is still unstable. Who shall hold it and fix it? that it may be settled a while, and a while catch the glory of that ever-fixed eternity. This, incidentally, is a big reason why mystics meditate, because the mind is always distracted by this mental construction, this story of I moving through time from past to future. And this is what he's saying. This is what distracts us from that eternal now, that reality, because we're always living in these imaginary worlds. And so one of the things that meditation does, it's a very practical way of getting attention to stay still, training attention to stay still a while. Because as long as attention is moving about in these imaginary worlds, it is missing the reality of now. So this is why enlightenment, realization, gnosis, only happens now in the present. It never is going to happen tomorrow. Here's what the Buddhist Huang Po said. You have just to understand that time periods have no real existence. Hence, the attainment of the vital intuition, that's his word for enlightenment, occurs neither within nor without a 500-year period. (laughs) It's vital to us if if we are interested in mystical realization of truth for our own experience. It's vital for us to be able to detach from this story of I that is time-bound long enough for attention to realize the reality of what is now. So how can we do this? The first thing is to recognize when memory is present in our awareness or when future plans or expectations or fantasies are present, to look right at them. This isn't about getting rid of them. Look right at them and see that they are just thoughts. You're looking at them from a present awareness, not losing yourself, not getting lost in the stories they're creating. And then as an experiment, if you can see one as just a thought, then for a moment you can refuse to follow it up with another thought, with another thought, which will take you off into that story about what happened yesterday and and how your husband or your wife really neglected their task and they were supposed to do, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Or that story about how wonderful it's going to be when I get out of here because I'm going to the park this afternoon. I have to sit here and listen to this guy talking, (laughs) da-da-da-da. You see, okay, and you just look right at it, and you see that's just a thought. And then just for a moment, you don't follow it up with another thought. And you, in that sense, return to the present. What is the present experience right now? Just a moment opens up, you know, because your mind's going to be cranking out more thoughts. So let's try a little experiment. Uh, this is an informal meditation. I'm not going to ring gongs or anything, but if you just uh, get quiet, and for the purpose of this experiment... I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, although normally you could do this with your eyes open. If you're a practitioner, you probably should, just for the sake of consistency. But it's easier for this kind of thing for most people to do with their eyes closed. And I'm just going to give you some instructions and see if you can actually now see this. I just want to give you a taste of how this works. And this is something you can do on your own. 
This is a way of interrupting the story of I and detaching from this fixation on the past as real and the thoughts of the future as real. Okay? So here we go. Generate a memory of the past, a vivid memory. It might be your first date, it might be a wedding, a funeral, something strong, a strong memory. And now make it as vivid, as realistic as possible. See if you can flush it out with colors and textures or even sounds, what people said or did. Or... Now just become aware that that is imaginary. No matter how vivid, it's still imaginary. It is uh, taking place in the mind as an act of mental creation. Now see if you can just let that go, let it dissolve and return to the present, present experience. Be here now. Now generate a thought of something you expect to happen, or plan to happen, or a fantasy of what you would like to happen. And try to make that as vivid as possible. Now look right at that. See that this is a creation of imagination. And let that dissolve without following up with another thought and return to the present experience. Becoming fully aware of what's going on now. Okay, how'd you do with this? It was like doing an art project. Even though there was a memory there to, to build on, creativity comes into play where there's like, well, I don't know if the memory that I was conjuring up was as real as, as it could have been, but it was maybe even prettier. And could you then become aware of the present and see that this was happening in the present? And the difference, what it's like to be kind of getting lost in this imaginary world and then what it's like to be present? Not much. Uh-huh. Not much difference. <laughs> Not much difference. <laughs> Anybody else have some experience they want to share here with this? Well, it's all a fantasy. It's just that the, the present, you have more uh, uh, current cues to go on. When you're thinking about the past, it's what you can dredge up from your memory or yeah. fantasize about the future. Interestingly enough, if you pay attention to how your thoughts operate during the day, not just in a formal thing, uh, you'll see these cues that happen in the present almost always touch off something that goes back to the past or into the future. The, the attention really just stays in the present. 
So just, you know, a, a little the kids playing in the park. Oh, and the mind starts drifting. Oh, when I was a kid, I used to, oh, we had a slide like that. I remember, you know, I mean, we're not necessarily deep into some memory. Then something else comes up. A car horn honks. That's right. I got to take my car into uh, Monday. I got to remember to take it in for a tune-up. You know what I mean? It's we're bouncing back and forth. This is what Augustine meant by our hearts flutter from the past to the future, past to the future, past to the future. We, in the formal practice, want to make it vivid so we can see clearly what's going on. But this is going on all the time in, a, in this, like a frequency of a cesium atom, you know? I don't know how many megahertz. But, <clears throat> um, but I kept saying, okay, return to the present, return to the present. And in fact, a lot of teachers nowadays teach this, staying in the present as though this were enlightenment. So always stay in the present. Always got to be in the present. Oh, sets so of a big conflict. You've got to walk around all day. Remember to be in the present. <laughs> Breathe, soft belly. <laughs> be in the present. <laughs> There's no present to be in. No, really. The Lord, I think, said that, that really, if there's no past, there's no future, where is the present? What are the boundaries of the present? Where does the present end? And where does it begin? I bring this up. It's a subtle... But it's dangerous because particularly for spiritual seekers, particularly for meditators, when we start meditating, when we learn to recognize the imaginary uh, nature of our fantasies and our memories, and when we begin to recognize the story of I, and we begin to get some detachment, and then there's clarity, and there's little bliss, there's little calmness, and it's all in the present. And then there's also perhaps the commentary uh, here gets very sharp about the present. Oh, oh, this is what the meditators were talking about. Oh, this is what my teachers talked about. Oh, this is wonderful. Ah, now I'm now I'm really getting it. Oh, my meditation's really going good. Uh-oh, what was that? Oh, I had a little flash. No, no, I got to stay in the present. We start to cling to the present. A subtle attachment develops to what we call present experience with a commentary that is tracking the present. And, you know, for most people, it's very pleasant because all the anxiety and stuff associated with our memories and our, you know, just falls away. But we also want to be careful not to get stuck in the present, so to speak, not to start to imagine if I could only just always stay in the present, that would be enlightenment. Enlightenment is not about always staying in the present. Enlightenment is not about time at all. The eternal now that Meister Eckhart talked about is timeless. It's beyond past, present, and future. Now we're getting to some place where the mind can't go, the thinking mind, can it? What is beyond past, present, and future? What is timeless? How do I get there? <laughs> and when? When do I get there? <laughs> Huang Po again. If there's never been a single thing, past, present, and future are meaningless. So those who seek the way must enter it with the suddenness of a knife thrust. This is why uh, a realization, Gnosis Enlightenment, is always sudden. The, the path is gradual. What we do in terms of exploring our own experience and recognizing, oh, this is imaginary, just what we've been doing this morning, this is gradual. But enlightenment is never gradual. It's never gradual because gradual is in time. And you can't get to timelessness through time. It's actually a good metaphor in modern terms to say enlightenment is like a quantum leap. A quantum leap is when an electron of a cesium atom or any atom goes from one orbit to another. It does not pass through time and space. It's in this orbit and then it's in this orbit. That's what it, technically what a quantum leap means. This is what uh, the Taoist Chung Su says. Forget the years. Forget distinctions. Leap into the boundless and make it your home. Now, unfortunately... No one can tell you how to do that. Because any how-to is a method, and methods happen in time. If you try hard enough, you may really just give up. 
That might be a, a clue here. But you have to really try hard, see. You can't just give up prematurely. <laughs> so I think the best thing to do is wrap this talk up with some words of the Buddha saying, Buddhas only point the way, each must struggle for themselves. So I'll leave you with that mystery to struggle with. So are there any questions or comments or yeah. You didn't bring up one thing that I read once, and that was uh, when you examine the present uh, closely, you realize that by the time you are cognizant of something that occurred presumably in the present, it's already the past. Yes. And the brain that, doesn't work instantaneously. And you will find that when you get into this examination in a, in a formal sense uh, closely, this is clinging or trying to cling to the present, you see. You're trying to identify the present. Oh, now you've been told, don't live in the past, don't live in the future. So you're trying to live in the present, and you'll never get to the present for just that reason. Yes? So the present is really a mental construct. Only It's only reality is in reference to the past and future. Yeah. Well, you examine this. Look, I'm not trying to tell you what's what, but I am trying to raise uh, questions in your mind. And particularly in this talk, and always, but raise questions about things that you take for granted. The whole culture takes for granted. You're not weird for taking it for granted. You're weird for questioning, actually. Most people, you know, don't want to question because, you know, uh, that can be dangerous. So quite the opposite of saying, take our teachings on faith, mystics say doubt. But don't just doubt our teachings, doubt everything. Everything that you take for granted, that you take on faith, if you're willing to uh, conduct uh, that kind of a radical inquiry based on that kind of radical doubt, then you can use the mind to get somewhere, which is nowhere. But you, you can at least get rid of the obstacles that you're hanging on to. And it takes you to, you know, a, a more and more uh, of not knowing, really. But it seems like um, I was really struck somewhere along the line with a, a sense of, presence or now, um, I'm used to saying, well, the past doesn't exist and the future doesn't exist, but it, it seems now like the, the now is a lot like enlightenment or God manifesting in everything or any of these sort of absolute terms that, that really are describing everything. There isn't any second to that. There isn't any dualism to it. It's just everything, and that's why it's so hard to see. Well, it's not actually hard to see. It's hard to talk about, and it's hard to think about, and that's why it's hard to see, because we're talking about it and thinking about it too much. But, uh, yes, in a way, you're right. And see, whatever terms we come up with eventually will fall short, and if we cling to any term, like even the now. Now, I just said there's no present, there's no past, there's no future, there's only eternal now. Well, what's the eternal now? Well, the eternal now is, as the Buddhists would say, empty of any inherent existence as well. We use some words to direct our attention to other layers of delusion, but you know, we, we create more delusion on a certain sense on top of that if we seize on these things. Look, this is very important. There's nothing wrong with planning, and there's nothing wrong with memory. But what we want to do is recognize the truth of what is happening when we are planning, and when we are remembering. That's the, that's the only trick here, is to continually be, be aware of what is really going on. We don't want to keep falling into this insanity where we start thinking these things have a reality they don't have. They have reality as imagination. But they don't have any reality beyond that. That's the thing. And the second thing is, when we hear these teachings, we use these teachings... But then don't fixate on the new teaching, non-clinging, non-grasping. So it's just, it's awareness without grasping. If you wanted to uh, boil the whole thing down, and you could just come down to that. Continually just being aware and letting what arises arise and pass and recognize with awareness, recognize. Not trying to stay in the present. <laughs> Not trying to get away from memory about the past or, or plans for the future. But it's this 
maintaining awareness. And even maintaining awareness is too strong. It's learning not to mask awareness. I think you said once that you that when you have a spiritual insight, you should fall into it and don't think about it. Yeah, don't think about it anymore at all. Just fall That's into right. It. There's some spiritual insights that come through the mind that are very important, and uh, the mind has a tendency to conceptualize the insight. That's what the mind does, you know, as I say, for a living. That's, it's hired to conceptualize everything. But the point is, if your attention goes to the concept that you've wrapped around the insight, you lose the insight. If you just let that go, the insight is a living experience, a true direct insight. The insight into impermanence, for instance. When we start getting insights into impermanence, we don't have to remember them because our living experience becomes one of impermanence. You see what I mean? So it's a continuing insight, so to speak. In fact, our very attempt to remember, cling to that insight, oh, I have this wonderful insight into impermanence, is taking us away from the present awareness of experience of impermanence. Yeah, sure. It's kind of a weird question, but... Um... When we're in the past or we're in the future, we get there through our imagination. Mm -hmm. When we're in the present, there is sometimes a whole different quality to it where thought is not going on and commentary is not happening. But you've said, don't cling to the past, don't cling to the future, don't cling to the present. That last one I saw, oh. Um, because it seems like a big improvement to me to have my mind stopped from being back there or out there to being in the... And it seems almost useful to cling to that um, space of no commentary, no thought going on, just just observing um, breath and sensation... It's useful to get there, but not to cling. You see, everything is useful on a spiritual path relative to something else. Nothing is, uh, has any you know, ultimate value. All use is relative to what we want to do. That's the definition of use. What's the use of that tree out there? Well, it doesn't have any use. But if I want to build a house, it might have some use. If I want to burn fire in my fireplace, use. But in itself, it doesn't have any use. So everything is useful relatively. Now, normally when we start out, when we come to a spiritual path, most people have no experience of what it's like to be aware without the commentary. So that is one of the things that we strive for, especially in the beginning and middle stages of path, because from the space of having no commentary, you can see what commentary is. You can see its fictitious nature. You can see how ephemeral and unsubstantial it is. And all that weans us from this attachment to it. So that's why, particularly in the beginning meditation, concentration, we keep trying to return, return to this space of you know, present awareness. And mystics will talk about stay in the present and all that. So at that stage, for this purpose, this is very useful. I'm just warning against setting up a, uh, a new attachment as though this were something ultimate. It seems to me like that's a, a teaching for 20 years down the road for me since I have spent 99 and 999, you know, yeah. in the past or in the future in my mind. Maybe 20 minutes down the road for you. It might be in the next second when you just recognize, oh, I'm clinging to the present. You see what that means? What would happen if I let that go? It feels like I'd be back. Well, it may. <laughs> You've got to experiment. You know, some of the teachings are very rigorous. Some instructions are very precise. It's always good to start and not just invent your own, because this is thousands of years of people who have developed this, do you know what I mean? And they've, they've made it precise for a reason. And if you just let your ego play with it to suit you prematurely, you're kidding yourself. But once you get into the practice, once you understand how it works, you have to start experimenting. If you're just following these practices totally mechanically and rigidly, you know, you'll become a very good meditator, but there'll be no insight in it. So you, it's, like, it's like learning music, you know? You master your instrument before you start trying to improvise. Once you've mastered your instrument, you're still not yet playing music. I saw um, 
Isaac Stern, is he the violinist? Mm-hmm. Went to China. I saw a clip of him touring China. He goes to these music schools in China where they're teaching violin stuff. And they get this one a young woman, 19, 20, 21, you know, the best student at this school, to get up and play for him. And she plays. And he's sitting there listening to this thing. And afterwards, he got up and says, this is technically perfection. He says, but now you have to play. And then he starts talking to her about, you know, the feel of it, playing, you know, because she'd mastered, you see. So, but in a practice, you'd be practicing long like this, you know, I don't know, tomorrow, the next day, maybe 20 years, and you'll suddenly become aware, oh, I'm, I'm, I am clinging to this person. I've got a new form of clinging attachment here. And then if the mind says, well, don't let go because you'll fall back in the past, then you're a slave to that very same, you know, what would happen? Whenever we're experimenting, whenever we're trying something new like this, because we don't know what's going to happen, not because we do know what's going to happen, otherwise why bother doing it? That's why we can't decide to leap. But there is a funny moment comes where we can decide to let go, maybe, you see? And what would happen? I don't know. See, I rely on all of you for getting 90% of what I say until you need it. If you've been listening, I mean, if you've been dozing, it won't work, but if you've been listening, the seeds are there. If you need them, you may not. You may not need anything I say. Some other teacher may give you the seed that just is the key that opens the door. So, what I see here, I can tell you this. It can't hurt you, and that might have helped. All right, it's uh, getting on a little bit. Let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to stay, have some tea, check out the library. Until we see you again, peace to